Welcome to Ike Land, the podcast where I, Thomas Robertson, he, him, take you on a journey through the world of British conspiracy theorist David Ike, a self-confessed, tireless campaigner for truth. Tread carefully and follow me. In Ikeland, they lurk in every shadow and behind every corner. The lizard men who rule the world need human blood to maintain their human disguises. So, for your own safety, keep your hands and feet inside the podcast. Alright, welcome back. Uh, episode 3 of the David Ike Baptiste de Pape interview. Third and final installment here. Uh, apologies for my voice. I've just been a bit under the weather this past week. Uh, it's also why the pod is a bit late. Yeah, you know, can't help what the kids bring home from school to infect you with, I'm, I'm afraid. Anyway, let's jump right back in. Okay, cast your mind back to our first episode in this series where we discussed the two-tiered faction who, according to Ike, rule us and run the world. On the lower level, we have the human agents of the cult who have who run the UN and the World Health Organization and organize the World Economic Forum. All those mundane human activities. On the higher level, though, are the non-human masters who those human agents serve. Mr. Ike is going to drop some truth on us today about those non-human cult masters. We're digging deep into the fantastic this episode, and you, dear listener, may never be the same again. One of the major reasons that this force, which operates outside of human sight, and, and it's worth just mentioning that, and this is really a foundation of uh, how people misunderstand the reality we live in, is that when we look into the world, we think we're looking at everything there is in the space we're looking at, but actually we're just seeing a tiny band of frequency called visible light. That's all we're seeing. And um, according to mainstream science, the electromagnetic spectrum, which is basically this reality, um, is 0.005% of what exists in the universe in terms of energy in its different forms. And visible light, the only frequency band that we could see, is a fraction of the 0.005%. Now, if you look through your eyes and you think you can see everything in the space that you're looking at, then when you talk about um, entities operating from the unseen, that becomes impossible because you would see them. But when you realize you're only seeing a tiny band of frequency, and the infinity, the entirety of infinity exists outside the frequency band that we could see. It's like a television channel. Then you immediately start to understand how um, there are uh, entities manipulating human society that we can't see. And um, this um, simulation has been created. I go into this and other levels of the simulation in the, the trap um, very deeply. But um, this simulation was created to hijack human perception. That's the whole foundation. Uh, human perception is the stadium on which the game is played or in the, which the game is played. Human behavior comes from human perception. You control human perception, you control human behavior. Ike mentions his new book there, The Trap, which I've started reading, and oofty doofty, we're in for a treat. So, human perception is the stadium in which the game is played. What a line. I think that's got to be the first Ikeland bumper sticker when we start making those, right? Where do we even start with this? Let's shine a light on where these dastardly Archons could be hiding then. So, shockingly, Ike's kinda, sorta right. About 0.01% of the mass energy of the entire universe occurs in the form of electromagnetic radiation. The section of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see with our human eyes is pretty minuscule. 
Imagining a line from left to right, the spectrum runs gamma, x-ray, ultraviolet, infrared, microwave, and radio. What we human beings experience as visible light is a tiny sliver on the spectrum sandwiched between ultraviolet and infrared. Of what makes up the universe, only 4% is observable. The rest is made up of dark matter and dark energy, with dark matter making up 26% of the universe and dark energy making up 70% of the universe, respectively. Dark matter and dark energy aren't observable, and scientists rely on studying the gravitational effects they have on observable objects to learn about them. It's hypothesized that dark matter could contain supersymmetric particles that are partners to particles already known in the standard models of physics. It's hoped that experiments like those performed at the Large Hadron Collider may shed some light on dark matter. Pun intended. Dark energy appears to be linked with the vacuum of space, but is otherwise a question mark at this stage. Honestly, this is heady stuff that my smooth brain struggles to wrap itself around. Consult your local physicist for more information. So with 96% of the universe only something we're vaguely aware of, it leaves a lot of space for demons and archons to run around unobserved. There's no evidence suggesting anything intelligent or malevolent is hiding in the unobservable parts of the universe, but fair shake, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. It's pretty bloody unlikely though. Debunking this sort of thing is hard. Ike will slip through the holes of any net we cast. If we say there's no evidence these entities exist, I could say that they haven't been found yet, or they aren't detectable by science, or scientists are hiding their existence from the public because scientists are fundamentally untrustworthy. You know, that old chestnut. I could get really zen about it. We all know what an hour of the day or the mind are, but if Ike asked us to show him either, we'd be pretty bloody stumped up to do it. Anyway, the point is, Ike will invoke science when it suits his talking points hence his factoid about visible light, and disregard science as disinformation when it doesn't support his points. Remember, Ike rejects the authority of scientists and academics. They're agents of the system. Experts are indoctrinated. They spread the disinformation of our cult masters to uphold cult control and push their agenda. Well, that is pretty vague, though. 96% of the universe is a big place to hide. Look, don't fret. Ike's about to get a whole lot more specific. Ike continues red-pilling Baptiste, and uh, he reveals these entities for what they are. Psychic parasites. You um, get people to believe there's a deadly virus and only a uh, fake vaccine would save them from it. All lies, of course, uh, as we now can clearly see, and some of us said so at the time. Um, Then they're going to behave in ways that meekly go under lockdown, put a face nappy on and take the jab. But if they perceive that situation differently, they'll do none of those things. So controlling perception is to control behavior. Um, But there's another uh, area of this, and that is that every time we think or feel emotion, we are generating a frequency that relates to that thought or emotion. So hate and uh, fear and anxiety and resentment and regret, they all have low frequencies that they, they, uh, they, uh, they generate, those states of being. Whereas love and joy and all these things are very high frequencies. So that, and, and this has been established by mainstream science now. Um, and so what we call human perception, individual perception, actually manifests itself as a, as a frequency. Certain, your perception would generate a frequency that relates to that perceptional state in all its different forms. 
Now, what if, and I strongly suggest this is the case, um, that this force um, feeds off human energy, that we are its sustenance, that when uh, the Morpheus character in the Matrix held up the battery and said uh, the Matrix is a computer-generated dream world designed to turn humans into one of these, it was a profound truth. And this is um, something that can be found in, in ancient cultures as well as in modern experience and research that this is what is happening. So um, this force, by its very nature, is uh, an inverted, distorted, actually insane state of consciousness, which means it's in a low vibrational state. And to absorb energy sustenance, it has to be within the frequency band that it's operating on. Otherwise, like radio stations, they would just pass in the night and not uh, affect each other. So this simulation, if you look back through history, you'll see the theme, has been uh, created specifically to put the vast majority of the population into a low vibrational state, one of struggle, of suffering, of um, trying to survive another day, um, and uh, a hopelessness, isolation, all these things. Uh, and uh, so that's why, and you know, I think it's important, you know, if you live in <clears throat> Western countries and you're doing all right, kind of financially, up to now anyway, you can think, well, you know, I like it here. I'm having a good time. I am, you know, okay. <clears throat> but if you travel any to any extent, you travel to Asia, to Africa, to South America, to Central America, um, to Eastern Europe, you'll see that the vast overwhelming majority of the population are not having a good time. They're struggling to survive another day. They're living in poverty. They're living in horrible conditions. They're worried about, you know, what's going to happen to their kids because um, they might live in a, in a, a place of violence uh, and, and hostility. And so what are they doing? They're constantly, daily, minute by minute, producing this energy of anxiety and fear and struggle and suffering. Then you look at the wars. Why? If you... <clears throat> said to most people in the world, you want a war, they'd say, well, no, it's lost if you want. Well, why do we have so many then? And why we've had so many throughout human history? Because what is a war? It's a phenomenal producer of low vibrational human emotion and human uh, mental energy. Yes. Uh, not just with the people taking part, but the, the loved ones fearing that their loved ones will not come home. Yes. Um, and so, you know, if you look at, if you wanted, let's put it this way, if you wanted to produce fantastic amounts of low vibrational human, especially emotional energy, then you would create a world that's pretty much the one we have. Absolutely. So, uh, Mr. Ike, if I could summarize this specific point, then we could say that they want us in despair, in poverty, but they still want us alive because they are feeding on our energy. And if we're not alive, they cannot feed on us. Is that a correct uh, uh, summary? Well, that's absolutely right. But um, uh, I think what is called the Great Reset is much bigger than people realize. It's not just uh, resetting this, that, and the other. It's resetting everything. And it's resetting how efficiently humans are trawled of this energy. So let's go back um, to what I said earlier.
To say that there's a lot to unpack in that clip is a bit of an understatement, so let's recap. COVID-19 is fake, so are the vaccines. Masks are face nappies. Hilarious. Every thought and feeling we have generates a frequency unique to it. Negative emotions are low frequency. Positive emotions are high frequency. Perceptions also create frequencies. The archons, or demons, or jinn, or whatever you want to call them, sustain themselves on the low frequencies which our negative emotions create, and we are their food. The psychic parasites live in the frequency band of our negative emotions. The drudgery of human existence throughout our history was the work of the parasites, who made us miserable so that we would produce more food for them. The global south is kept deliberately impoverished to produce food for these entities. The Great Reset is in fact a great leap forward in terms of how these entities harvest our energy. Ike's thoughts about COVID-19 could fill an episode on their own. Something I want to do in the future, believe me. I really only left that in because Ike calling masks face nappies made me laugh. (laughs) Obviously we need to talk about the elephant in the room. The entities feeding on our negative emotions. That's quite a truth bomb Ike has dropped on us. I called them psychic parasites, but really it sounds like we're being farmed by these entities. It's essentially the plot of the Matrix, and Ike doesn't even try to shy away from the comparison. He even quotes Morpheus extensively. Does Ike fancy himself as a Morpheus, I wonder? A renegade leader in the Resistance? The similarities to the Matrix only intensify as Ike finally unveils the sinister grand plan the psychic parasites have for humanity and AI. What what they are openly saying now is they want to connect the human brain to AI. Well, I've said in the books for years, I say that ultimately, all right, you have algorithmic AI and all these different levels of AI. Ultimately, the AI they want to connect to the human brain is this non-human force um, to create a human hive mind, centrally controlled hive mind. Literally, that's what happens. I mean, if everyone's connected to AI, of course you've got a hive mind, uh, centrally controlled. So we become like ants in a way. Yeah, exactly like that. That's, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. Um, and and um, so what would that give um, control of? Okay, uh, when we go into different emotional and mental states, we generate energy frequencies that relate to those mental and emotional states. Okay, so they have to manipulate society so that people have experiences that generate those states. Now, what if you didn't have to do that anymore? Because what's going to happen is the mental and emotional state will be delivered to the organism through AI, where the human thought and emotional processes will be, will be hijacked, and it will come direct from AI, and your mental and emotional state will be delivered to you. And when you uh, have that emotional and mental state delivered, your body will respond uh, by producing and your field will respond by producing the frequencies that relate to those mental and emotional states. You you basically create a hive mind, low vibrational energy system. Um, That is, it's, it's basically a global technological network in which humans become like those babies in the Matrix movies. Um, where the machines fed off the um, the life force, the energy force of the of the children, and they kept producing children technologically um, to feed off their off their energy. Uh, it was a, it was an analogy, a very good analogy. And so this is what it's all about. This is the end game. 
Human misery on tap for the Archons. One great human hive mind connected by AI that the parasites can manipulate into misery whenever they need a feed. There's no doubt that artificial intelligence is hurtling down the pipeline to us. We're already seeing how useful tools like chat and GPT are, and it's astounding how clever it is. Just this week past, my friend Michael prompted chat GPT to create a new rule for Dungeons and Dragons, and the output was both creative and interesting. I can't deny that artificial intelligence will be as disruptive to the world as the widespread adoption of the internet was in the 1990s. In all likelihood, it will be far more disruptive. It's hard at this stage to imagine the changes which are to come as AI improves and becomes a part of our everyday lives. It's known, though, that conspiracy theorists favour big explanations for big disruptions. For example, take events like the 9-11 attacks and the conspiracy theories which arose afterward to explain them. The attacks in their aftermath seem disproportionate to the attacks perpetrator's ability to change the world. It's astounding, frankly, that 19 hijackers could cause the death of 2,996 people and set in motion a war on terror which would result in over 900,000 casualties. It's hard to fathom. Those numbers don't sound real, even though I assure you that they are true. Hearing that makes the world feel uncertain. Like, history is nothing more than a series of accidents and coincidences. By comparison, a plot by the US government or the secret rulers of the world to advance their nefarious agenda seems far more appropriate as an explanation for so much suffering, really. Big events, big explanations. That's the conspiracy theorist mindset. I think the cybernetic emotional dysregulation that Ike predicts is nothing more than scaremongering. That being said, I'm no futurist, but I think it's far more likely AI will be discrete tools to assist human beings making decisions, rather than a digital devil who's torture us for its amusement like a Harlan Ellison short story. I find it interesting that Ike will identify a real problem and attribute responsibility for it to a supernatural or otherworldly intelligence. In this case, we have Ike discussing wealth inequality between developed and developing countries. As always, the situation is more complex than Ike will make it sound. Inequality between developed and developing countries is absolutely growing, but so is inequality within countries. The divide between rich and poor is increasing in developed and developing countries alike. For example, according to the UK's Royal Geographic Society, India has the largest concentration of poor people in a single nation, but also has a significant middle class and a very wealthy elite. Wealth inequality can be explained by many factors. The Royal Geographic Society identifies factors impacting wealth distribution, such as access to health and education, a country's natural resources, industry and economy, trade policies and access to markets, conflict within nations and between them, how the country is governed, and its relationships with other countries, as well as their vulnerability to natural hazards and climate change. Did you notice how I didn't list psychic parasites as a factor? Neither did the Royal Geographic Society. Wealth inequality is a complex phenomenon. The causes for it, and the factors which exacerbate it, are numerous. It isn't a mystery to us, though. Certainly not something to make us throw our hands up in the air in exasperation and say, gee whiz, I guess this invisible monster is keeping the human race down. However, I suspect it may be the complexity or the multitude of causes that invites the simplicity of Ike's explanation. 
Too many factors, too many moving parts. It's far easier to explain the cause of wealth inequality as psychic parasites than to explain the tedious nuances of trade policies. It also alleviates any guilt those of us fortunate enough to be living in a developed country have over the exploitation of developing countries. The misery of the people living there isn't because developed countries have plundered their natural resources or exploited their people in sweatshops and factories because of our addiction to fast fashion and iPhones. No, it's the psychic parasites. They're the ones to blame. Alright, climbing off my soapbox now, let's do a deep dive into what Ike is saying. Starting with Ike's claims about thoughts and perceptions generating frequencies. If you're familiar at all with the law of attraction, or saw Oprah talking about the secret, or even read the secret yourself, you've probably already heard this idea before now. I wanted to try and find its origin, and best I can tell as of the time of this recording, I've narrowed it down to an American occultist named William Walker Atkinson. Atkinson was active in the New Thought Movement, a 19th century forerunner of the New Age Movement. Atkinson was a prolific author, often writing under pseudonyms. In 1908, Atkinson published Thought Vibrations, or The Law of Attraction in the Thought World, all about, yep, you guessed it, the vibration of thoughts. Atkinson wasn't the first to suggest that thoughts or mental activities were actually vibrations, but as far as I can tell, he was the author who cemented it in place as part of the quote-unquote ancient wisdom movements, like the New Age movement, draw on and uh, recycle endlessly. Thought vibrations were first proposed by 18th century English philosopher David Hartley. Hartley's Doctrine of Vibrations was an attempt to explain the physical basis for psychical phenomenon, that is, mental activity such as sensation, ideas, memory, pleasure, pain. Hartley's Doctrine of Associations explained thoughts and memories as being the result of the ever-present vibrations occurring in the brain, the result of the heat of the brain and the pulsation of its arteries. These vibrations originating in the brain could become associated with vibrations caused by sensations of external stimulus to produce ideas, which could become associated with other ideas, again the product of internal and external vibrations to produce new ideas. I'm sure Hartley is rolling in his grave over uh, <laughs> how grossly I've misunderstood his idea and misrepresented it, but uh, I thought it was interesting and I wanted to share regardless. Anyway... Atkinson takes Hartley's ideas and uh, he runs with them. In Thought Vibrations, or The Law of Attraction in the Thought World, Atkinson writes, When we think we set into motion vibrations of a very high degree, but just as real as the vibrations of light, heat, sound, electricity. That we cannot see, hear, weigh, or measure these vibrations is no proof that they do not exist. There exist waves of sound which no human ear can hear, although some of those are undoubtedly registered by the ears of some of the insects, and others are caught by delicate scientific instruments invented by man, yet there is a great gap between the sounds registered by the most delicate instrument, and the limit which man's mind, reasoning by analogy, knows to be the boundary line between sound waves and some other form of vibrations. Atkinson also provides the association between positive emotions and high vibrations, and negative emotions and low vibrations. He writes, The mind has many degrees of pitch, ranging from the highest positive note to the lowest negative note, with many notes in between, varying in pitch according to their respective distance from the positive 
or negative extreme. When your mind is operating along positive lines, you feel strong, buoyant, bright, cheerful, happy, confident, and courageous, and you are enabled to do your work well, to carry out your intentions, and progress on your road to success. You send out strong, positive thought, which affects others and causes them to cooperate with you or to follow your lead, according to their own mental keynote. When you are playing on the extreme negative end of the mental keyboard, you feel depressed, weak, passive, dull, fearful, cowardly. Anyway, all of this is to say that thought frequencies or thought vibrations aren't an Ike original. Ike is just playing the classics. Enough about frequencies. Let's talk about the entities themselves and the quote-unquote evidence of their existence. Um, and the, the, this is the point. This force needs us. We don't need it. It needs us. We are its sustenance. Thus, without us, it's in trouble. And that's why it's terrified of people waking up because lunch is no longer served in, a, in that way. And it's interesting, you know, there was a guy called Robert Monroe. And um, in the 1950s, he began to um, have spontaneous out-of-body experiences where he went to another level of uh, his energetic field, not the physical, might call it the astral, if you like, and, um, and started seeing other realities um, that interpenetrate this one. And um, he became a leading figure in writing and talking about this whole subject. And I think he got, he got involved at one point in experiments in America with the um, authorities um, to, um, to see um, how this whole out-of-body thing worked and obviously what he experienced out-of-body. And it was done in a scientific study type of way. He wrote some books um, on it uh, um, later. And one of the things that he writes about, became famous for talking about, is that um, he experienced entities on other levels of, of, uh, of reality beyond the visible light scene of the physical. Um, and they were systematically feeding off human emotional energy. And he coined the phrase for this energy of louche. L-O-O-S-H, Louche, uh, and that uh, humanity um, was basically a Louche machine for this uh, non-human force that was feeding off that uh, energy. Just for understanding, is it, is it only negative emotions or is it also because uh, in your work you say when we are in, let's say, high vibration and joy and love, they cannot, we are in fact unplugged from them. Um, so they need negative emotion in order to be fed. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, 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 from what I kind of understand and what, you know, um, Monroe was writing about all those years ago, um, they can feed to an extent of all energy uh, to an extent, but it's negligible. Uh, when compared with low vibration emotion, which is what they actually um, are looking for. Uh, and, um, and, and so, and, and I go into in the trap, you know, the, the after, after death um, uh, realm as well, um, is all, is, is all, is all part of this, what we call reincarnation is all part of the simulation. Oh, geez. Reading Robert Monroe's books this week while I was sick was a feverish adventure to say the least. Robert Monroe wrote The Journeys Trilogy from 1971 to 1994, detailing his own and others' experiences while undergoing out-of-body experiences. 
1974, Monroe opened the Monroe Institute of Applied Sciences to study out-of-body experiences and educate people about them. Monroe's books are dense and full of pseudo-jargon, which makes them impenetrable unless read cover to cover. I will say, Monroe has quite an imagination. Unfortunately, the fantastic parts are buoyed by the mundane. Think of The Phantom Menace. It's all exciting science fiction stuff. Spaceships, aliens, pod racing, and lightsabers. But then the whole plot is about a tax dispute. Monroe's books have the same vibe. You may have encountered some of Monroe's work out in the wild. If you've ever seen videos on YouTube for binaural beats, music which is claimed to improve your focus or boost your intelligence, you have Robert Monroe to thank, as they're a creation of his laboratory. In the future, I think we'll have to take a detour and dedicate an episode to Monroe and his books. Anyway, what we're interested in now is what Mr. Monroe had to say about Loosh, the energy these nasty entities source from us. Monroe explains Loosh in his book Far Journeys, published in 1985. In the book, Monroe relates an encounter he had with a non-physical being, known as a curl, whom he refers to as BB, in the proximity of Earth, while Monroe was out of body. BB originates from a place outside of the physical universe, which BB calls KT-95. BB and his friend AA came to Earth as part of a cruise of the physical universe, which they call TSI, time-space illusion. The information, or a rote in Monroe-ese, about Louche was given to BB by the cruise operator as a part of the itinerary for the tour of Earth. In Monroe's jargon, information is shared between non-physical entities as these rotes. A rote is not communication as we would understand it, and as best as I can understand it, a rote can best be understood as sort of an executable file on your computer. When you run the rote, Monroe's words, the rote unfolds for the recipient as a lived experience. Through the rote, Monroe experiences the creation of the Earth by someone firsthand. That's someone with a capital S. Someone is from somewhere, again with a capital S. Someone and or their compatriots desire louche. I say and or their compatriots because some of these entities experience existence as a hive mind, one and many simultaneously, which in someone's case is hinted at but left intentionally vague. Anyway, Someone wants Louche, and rather than be hassled to collect it in the wild, someone decides to create Louche artificially. Prepare yourself. I'll read an excerpt from Monroe's book, Far Journeys Now, because, well, frankly, I suffered through this assault of prose, and I think you should too. Apologies for the length. I've shortened it where I could, but it is a saga. Prospectors from somewhere ranged far and wide in search of Louche sources and new discoveries were hailed with much enthusiasm and reward. So it was that someone and his garden changed all this. Far off, in a remote area, he set to work on his experiment. First, he created a proper environment for the carbon-oxygen cycle, where it would flourish. He created a balance with much care, so that proper radiation and other nourishment would be in continuous supply. He then tried his first crop, which actually did produce louche, but only in small quantities, and of comparatively low grade, not significant enough to take back to the heart of somewhere. 
The problem was twofold. The life period was too short, and the crop units themselves were too minute. This brought about limits in quality and quantity, as the crop had no time to generate louche in such close tolerances. Moreover, the louche could be harvested only at the moment of termination of the lifespan, not one moment before. His second crop was no better, if as good. So, the garden is the earth, obviously, which someone either creates or changes to make it suitable for life. As best as I can tell, the first crop mentioned by Monroe are single-celled organisms in the ocean. Evidently, this is a swing and a miss for someone. The louche is of poor quality and can only be harvested with the death of the organism. So, bam bam. Someone's not one to quit, though, and he continues to grind away at the problem. Next, he creates the second crop, plants and trees. Oh, and weather. Monroe writes, He changed the environment to another part of the garden, where the density was gaseous rather than liquid, and the high-density chemicals formed a solid base and thus were still available. He planted numberless units in many varieties in a new form, with a great increase in size, some many thousands of times larger and more complex than the simple unicellular first crop. He reversed the carbon-oxygen cycle, yet all had a basic uniformity. Like the first crop, they would reseed at regular intervals and terminate their lifespans automatically. To avoid the uneven distribution of chemicals and radiation which had been prevalent in the first crop, he immobilized the second crop. Each was designed to stay principally in its own sector of the garden. To this end, each was given firm tendrils which burrowed deep in the more dense chemical matter. Attached to this was a stem or trunk which helped elevate the upper portion upward for its share of needed radiation. The upper portion, broad, thin, and somewhat fragile, was designed as a transducer of carbon-oxygen compounds to and from the crop unit. As an added thought, brilliant color radiators accompanied by small particle generators were mounted on each unit, usually near the top and symmetrically centered. He set up circulating patterns in the gaseous envelope around the crop, principally to aid in the reseeding process. Later, he discovered that the same turbulent effect served as a means of harvesting the louche. If the turbulence were violent enough, the crop would be blown down, the lifespan terminated, and the louche would be discharged. This was especially useful when an immediate louche supply was desired at a particular point, rather than at harvest time. Despite all of this, the second crop was most unsatisfactory. While it was true that a much greater quantity was attained, the unrefined louche produced was of such low grade that it was scarcely worth the effort. In addition, the growth period was now too long, and no increase in quality resulted. Some vital element was missing. Someone's second crop are obviously trees, but Monroe has to spend a paragraph describing them with clinical and alien observations instead of just saying tree, like he's trying to make up the word count on a school essay. Someone's trees are louche losers too. However, what I find incongruous is the description of what I think are flowers on these plants and trees someone has created. Um, brilliant colour radiators accompanied by small particle generators were mounted on each unit, usually near the top and symmetrically centred. My question is, why are there flowers when there aren't any pollinators? For decoration? Anyway. Someone goes back to the drawing board and decides to introduce the surf to the turf by introducing life from the ocean to the land. 
Which is bizarre, because the last we heard about life in the oceans, it was single-celled. Now we have mention of various sample units being selected for life on land. We're, we're told that these new, uh, quote-unquote, mobiles of the third crop are big and slow. So, presumably, tetrapods? I'm not sure. If they are tetrapods, as it sounds, Monroe has skipped right over everything that existed between single-celled life and tetrapods. Monroe writes... Someone hovered over his garden for long periods in study before he attempted the third crop. It was indeed a challenge. True, he was partially successful. He had grown louche, yet the product of his efforts fell far short of the wild, uncultivated variety. It was inevitable that he perceived the answer. The third crop was living proof of this truth. The original carbon-oxygen cycle must be included. Mobility must be restored. Both factors had shown great promise in high-grade louche production. If size could be added to this, much could be accomplished. With the plan in the forefront, someone removed various sample units from the first crop, which was still thriving in the liquid portion of the garden. He modified them to exist and grow in the gaseous area. He adapted them first to take nourishment from the second crop, which he permitted to abound for this very purpose. Thus it was the first of the mobiles, the third crop, came into being. The mobiles took nourishment from the second crop, thus ending its lifespan and producing low-grade louche. When each huge mobile terminated its own lifespan, additional louche was produced. The quantity was massive, but the frequency pattern of the louche residue still left much to be desired. It was by accident that someone came upon the prime catalyst as regards louche production. The monstrous and slow-moving mobiles had a lifespan far out of proportion to their nourishment input. The growth and life termination process was of such length that soon the mobiles would all but decimate the second crop. The entire garden would be out of balance, and there would be no louche production whatsoever. Both the second and third crop faced extinction. As the second crop grew scarce, energy needs of the mobiles became acute. Often two mobiles would seek to ingest the identical second crop unit. This created conflict, which resulted in physical struggle among two or more of the ungainly mobiles. Someone observed these struggles, at first bemused with the problem, then with great interest. As the struggles ensued, the mobiles were emanating louche. Not in fractional amounts, but in sizable, usable quantities and of a much higher purity. He quickly put the theory to the test. He removed another unit of first crop from the liquid garden area, redesigned it for the gaseous environment, but with one significant change. The new mobile would be somewhat smaller, but would require the ingestion of other mobiles for nourishment. This would solve the problem of overpopulation of mobiles, and at the same time would create good quantities of usable louche during each conflict struggle, plus a bonus if the new class of mobile terminated the lifespan of the other, someone would be able to transmit to somewhere practical amounts of reasonably pure louche. Thus it was that rule of the prime catalyst came into being. Conflict among carbon-oxygen cycle units brings forth consistent emanations of louche. It was as simple as that. Yeah, it's as simple as that, guys. Did you, did you get all that? Did you get how simple all that was? Look, let's just guess and say that Munro is talking about dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are awesome and this whole thing is silly. <laughs> to paraphrase from Munroese into English, plant-eating dinosaurs are good, but dinosaur-eating dinosaurs are better. 
But there's a problem. These dinosaurs are too damn big and they're living too damn long. This calls for a mass extinction and a back-to-basics approach as someone reinvents life in the ocean. Monroe writes, Satisfied that he had found the formula, someone prepared the fourth crop. He knew now that third crop mobiles were too large and too long in lifespan to be ultimately practical. If grown in large numbers, the entire garden would have to be expanded and enlarged. There was not enough space to grow such massively single units and the proportional leafy second crops to support them. Also, he reasoned correctly that more rapid and increased mobility would expand the conflict factor, with a resultant higher loose output. In one single motion, someone terminated the lifespans of all the lumbering third crop mobiles. Going back to the first crop in the liquid area, he modified and expanded them into the multitudes of shapes and sizes, giving them complex multicellular structures of high mobility. He designed into them a pattern of balance. There were those that ingested a second crop type of carbon cycle unit, basically a mobile, as an energy source. There were others, very highly mobile, who required for energy the ingestion of other mobile modified first crop units. The completed circuit operated quite satisfactorily. The stationary second crop modification in the liquid environment flourished. Small, highly active liquid breathing mobiles took nourishment. Eight the second crop modification. Larger and or other active mobiles consumed for energy the smaller plant eaters. When any mobile grew too large and slow, it became an easy target for the smaller mobiles, who attacked in voracious numbers. The chemical residue from these ingestive actions settled into the bottom of the liquid medium and so provided new nourishment for the stationaries. Modified second crop, completing the second circuit. The result was a steady flow of louche. From the lifespan termination of the stationaries, from the intense conflict among the mobiles to avoid ingestion, and finally, from the sudden termination of the lifespan of such mobiles as the inevitable product of such conflicts. So now, only after air-breathing land-dwellers have existed for only someone knows how long, do we finally have multicellular life in the ocean. That's just not how it happened, and we have the fossil record that shows that multicellular life in the ocean evolved into land-dwelling air breathers. None of this seesawing complexity between land and ocean. Once again, this information is from a cruise director for a non-physical entities who like to vacation. So I'm not going to break my back explaining the evolution of life on Earth to fact-check this. Just trust me when I say, if you use Monroe as a source for your biology homework, your parents will get a stern email from your teacher. Anyway, the recreation of ocean life is an overwhelming success and someone's, someone decides to dry out and return to the land. Monroe writes, turning to another portion of his garden, the gaseous area with dense compound base. Someone applied the same techniques with even more advanced improvements. He added many varieties of stationaries, original second crop, to provide sufficient and diverse nourishment for the new mobiles he was to create. As in the other garden area, he made such mobiles into balance of two species, those who ingested and drew energy from the second crop stationaries, and those who required other mobiles for sustenance. He created them in literally thousands of original types, small, large, yet none so large as the third crop mobiles, and ingeniously gave each some a pertinence for conflict. 
These took the form of mass, elusive speed, deceptive and or protective coding and colour radiation, wave action and particle perceptors and detectors, and unique higher density protuberances for gouging, grasping and rending during conflict. All of the latter served neatly to add to and prolong the conflict periods, with the resultant increase in louche emanation. Here's something interesting. According to a paper titled Evolution of Diets Across the Animal Tree of Life, published in 2019 by evolutionary biologist John Weens and his colleagues of the University of Arizona, it's likely that animals were carnivorous first and herbivores evolved later. Evidence suggests carnivores have existed for over 800 million years, almost as long as life on Earth has existed. Look, maybe Weens isn't current with the latest tourist information from KT95. Someone's got to red pill this guy. Anyway, all of that sounds like it's going pretty well for someone. Plants are being eaten, animals are being eaten, it's all enough louche for breakfast, lunch and dinner. However, as an innovator, someone has to push the envelope and stay on the cutting edge of louche acquisition. So in his greatest innovation since carnivores, someone creates... Human beings. Monroe writes... As a side experiment, someone designed and created one form of mobile that was weak and ineffective by the standards of the other mobiles in the fourth group. Yet this experimental mobile had two distinct advantages. It had the ability to ingest and take energy from both the stationaries and other mobiles. Second, someone pulled forth a piece of himself, no other source of such substance being known or available, to act as an intensive, ultimate trigger to mobility. Following the rule of attraction, someone knew that such infusion would create in this particular mobile species an unceasing mobility. Always, it would seek to satisfy the attraction this tiny motive himself engendered as it sought reunion with the infinite whole. Thus, the drive for satisfaction of energy requirements through ingestion would not be the only motivating force. More importantly, the needs and compulsions created by the pace of someone could not be satisfied throughout the garden. Thus, the need for mobility would be ever-present, and the conflict between this need and that of energy replacement would be constant, possibly a continuous high-order louche emanator if it survived. The fourth crop exceeded all of someone's expectations. It became apparent that a consistent, useful flow of louche was being produced in the garden. The balance of life operated perfectly, with the conflict factor producing immense amounts of louche and a steady supplement brought into being by the current lifespan terminations from all types of mobiles and stationaries. To handle the output, someone set up special collectors to aid in the harvest. He set up channels to convey the raw louche from his garden to somewhere. No longer did somewhere depend principally upon the wild state as the principal source of louche. The garden of someone had ended that. With the success of the garden and the production of louche by cultivated means, others began to design and build their gardens. This was in accordance with the law of supply and demand. Vacuum is an unstable condition. As the amounts of louche from someone's garden only partially met the requirements of somewhere. Collectors on behalf of the others would actually enter the garden of someone to take advantage of those small emanations of louche overlooked or ignored by the collectors of someone. Someone, his work completed, returned to somewhere and occupied himself with other matters. Louche production stayed at a constant level under the supervision of the collectors. The only alterations were ordered by someone himself. Under instructions from someone, 
the collectors periodically harvested segments of the fourth crop. This was done to ensure adequate chemicals, radiation, and other nourishment for the younger, oncoming units. A secondary purpose was to provide occasional extra amounts of louche created by such harvesting. To reap such harvest, the collectors generated storms of turbulence and turmoil in both the gaseous envelope and the more solid chemical formations that were the base of the garden itself. Such upheavals had the effect of terminating lifespans of multitudes of the fourth crop as they crushed under the rolling base formation or smothered under waves from the agitated liquid area of the garden. By a peculiarity of design, fourth crop units could not maintain their carbon-oxygen cycle surrounded by the liquid medium. The garden pattern of life might have gone on thus throughout eternity had it not been for the perception and inquisitiveness of someone. Someone doesn't just create humans, but imbues them with a piece of himself. In doing so, someone ensures humanity will be racked by a sense of being incomplete, a piece of them longing to be reunited with someone which can never return to its origin. This longing will take the form of a basis uh, for a drive in humanity beyond the purely biological, as are the needs of the other creatures created by someone. Right from the outset, humanity is made to suffer with a craving that can never be sated, perfect louche recipe apparently. Sounds an awful lot like the Gnosticism we were discussing last episode, uh, but I digress. When all that suffering doesn't suffice, the collectors, who I think it isn't unreasonable to suppose are one and the same as Ike's entities, will use natural disasters to wipe out humans and make up the louche quota. It all sounds like someone's experiments have paid off. He didn't expect to find out that humans could still be squeezed for more delicious louche. More rights. On occasion, someone would study samples of louche from his garden. There was no motive in doing so, other than the fact that someone may have held a remote continuing interest in his project. On a particular analysis of a louche sample, someone had casually examined the emanations and was about to return it to the reservoir when he became aware of a difference. It was very slight, but there it was. His interest centred immediately. He looked again. Woven delicately in with the more common louche emanations was a slender fragment of purified and distilled louche. This was an impossibility. Purified and distilled louche resulted only after the wild state louche had been processed many times. The louche from the garden of someone required the same treatment before it could be used. Yet, here it was, so finely graded in its refined radiations that it could, or would, not return into the compound with the raw substance. Someone reaffirmed his test, and the result was still positive. There was a factor in his garden of which he was unaware. Quickly, someone left somewhere and returned to the garden. Outwardly, all seemed the same. The solid base gaseous areas of the garden were an endless carpet of green, reflection from the thriving second crop. The modified first crop in the liquid area was in perfect accord with the action-reaction law, a division of cause and effect. Someone perceived without delay that the difference, the source of distilled louche, lay neither with the first nor with the second crop. He found his momentary touch of distilled louche emanation in one of the units of the fourth crop, which, by then, had filtered throughout the plantings of the second crop. The flash came during the unusual action of this unit as it entered into a life-terminating struggle with another fourth crop unit. This alone would not create distilled louche, someone knew and he probed, probed deeper for the source. It was at that moment he discovered the difference. 
The fourth crop unit was not struggling in conflict over an ingestible remnant of a weaker fourth crop unit or a tasty frond from a nearby second crop stem, or to avoid termination of life and ingestion by other conflicting fourth crop units. It was in conflict to protect and save from life termination. Three of its own newly generated species huddled under a large second crop unit waiting for the outcome. There was no doubt about it. This was the action that produced the flashes of distilled louche. With this clue, someone examined the actions of other fourth crop units in the garden. He found similar flashes when other fourth crop units took the same action in defense of their young. Still, there was an inconsistency. The sum of all such flashes of distilled louche emanation from all such action by the current fourth crop units would not amount to half of the total he found in the sample from the reservoir. It was obvious that another factor was present. Systematically, he hovered over the garden, extending his perception to all areas. Almost immediately, he found the source. High-order distilled louche radiation was originating from one particular section of the garden. Quickly, he hurried to the spot. There it was, an experimental modified fourth crop unit, one of those that contained a piece of himself and its functional pattern. It was standing alone under the leafy upper sections of a large second crop unit. It was not hungry, it was not in conflict with another fourth crop unit, it was not acting in defense of its young. Then why did it emanate distilled louche in such great quantity? Someone moved closer. His perception entered into the modified fourth crop unit, and then he knew. The unit was lonely. It was this effect that produced distilled louche. As someone drew back, he noted another unusual inconsistency. The modified fourth crop unit suddenly had become aware of his presence. It had collapsed and was jerking in strange convulsions on the solid base formation. Clear liquid was being expelled from the two radiation-perceiving orifices. With this, the distilled louche emitting became even more pronounced. It was from this that someone propounded his new, famous DLP formula, which is in effect in the garden at this time. The balance of the story is well known. Someone included the fundamental in his formula. The creation of pure, distilled louche is brought forth in type 4M units by the action of unfulfillment, but only if such pattern is enacted at a vibratory level above the sensory bounds of the environment. The greater the intensity of said pattern, the greater the output of louche distillate. To put the formula into effect, someone designed subtle changes in his garden, all of them familiar to every historian. The splitting of all crop unit types into halves to engender loneliness as they sought to reunite, and the encouragement of dominance of the type 4M unit are but two of the most noteworthy innovations. As it appears now, the garden is a fascinating spectacle of efficiency. The collectors have long since become masters at the art of the DLP formula. Type 4M units dominate and have spread through the entire garden, with the exception of the deeper portions of the liquid medium. These are the principal producers of louche. From experience, the collectors have evolved an entire technology with complementary tools for the harvesting of louche from the Type 4M units. The most common have been named love, friendship, family, greed, hate, pain, guilt, disease, pride, ambition, ownership, possession, sacrifice, and on a larger scale, nations, provincialism, wars, famine, religion, 
machines, freedom, industry, trade, to list a few. Louche production is higher than ever before. What I enjoy most about this section is someone's realisation about high quality louche. He observes it originating from humans defending their offspring, but it's only after this discovery that someone divides humanity into sexes. In order to increase our isolation by engendering loneliness as we seek to reunite with our other halves. Where did babies come from before someone invented sex? Did human 1.0 reproduce asexually? Lay eggs? Split in two like bacteria? And how do homosexual, asexual, and aromantic people figure into someone's schemes? If you told me they read passages of Monroe's book to prisoners at Guantanamo Bay to torture them, I would believe you. I may have committed a crime reading this much of it aloud and made you an accomplice in the process. If you see any police, just be cool and act natural. Anyway, remember last episode when we were discussing the Scientific American article referenced by Ike as evidence we live in a simulation? The author, Faud Khan, speculated that the purpose of the simulation, supposing we did live in a simulation, would be for the simulation's orchestrators to study the data we generate as we interact with the simulation. Data which we would perceive as consciousness. Unfortunately for Ike, he seemed to forget that part of the article. It would have been a brilliant opportunity for him to point at that and say, See? Evidence of louche! Anyway, all of this long quoting of Monroe has been to say that when Ike or one of his fans tells you that he's done his research... Keep in mind that this is the research. To add insult to hilarity, I'll quote Monroe one last time, very briefly. These are his thoughts immediately after learning the quote-unquote history of the Earth. Monroe writes, My first reaction was, there had to be some mistake. This was not the story history of Earth. BB had it mixed up with some other port of call on their cruise schedule. Yet as I ran the road again, the overlay of what little I knew of Earth's zoological and human history was uncomfortably accurate, albeit from another perspective. The food chain of Earth's ecobiologic system had been well established. Knowing this about Mother Nature, some of the hardcore philosophical speculators had often pondered where the human animal fit in the process. I love how Monroe was like, yep, sounds right to me, no need to visit the library to fact check anything. Shit, what a bummer. And after all that crazy, can I just say it's almost a relief to return to Ike? What's that? You thought we were done? No, 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 unfortunately not. Ike has more wisdom to share with us. This time, about reincarnation. But if you study near-death experiences, a lot of people who are going through that, they describe the, the body, let's say, as a vantage point. And um, their true being is uh, infinite intelligence, unconditional love, and there is no such thing as time. They, they say there is no such thing as reincarnation. There's only parallel lives. Everything is happening at the same time. And with their awareness, they, they can be anywhere at the same time. Um, so it, it seems that there's also, let's say, a divine uh, this, uh, spark of us, uh, which is infinite intelligence, unconditional love. So, yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends again. It depends on your perception, your self-identity. You can you can leave the body at what we call death, and you can get caught in the trap of reincarnation, or you can get the hell out of the whole thing. Um, because um, again, we have to be perceptually manipulated to believe 
that reincarnation is necessary. It's not. And, and um, you know, when, when, you, when you leave the body um, and when some apparently, apparently spiritual entity is telling you that, um, you know, you, you, you have to come back to learn lessons and stuff like that, um, then if, if you give your power away to that entity, then you're, you'll, you'll just get recycled back in this constant uh, loose-creating system. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I looked at reincarnation, and, and I was convinced eventually that it was true. And, and then I, But then I looked at the Eastern religions who were saying that you have to keep reincarnating to learn lessons, to reach a state of enlightenment where you don't have to reincarnate anymore. And I, I thought, well, that makes no bloody sense to me. Um, for a start, you um, you forget the previous lessons, so you're learning the same lessons again. Uh, according to mainstream science, uh, compared with the uh, size of the universe, planet Earth is the equivalent of a billionth of a pinhead. So, I mean, I, I cannot see why you have to keep reincarnating onto a billionth of a pinhead to learn lessons, so you eventually don't have to keep doing it. It makes no sense. But if you are dealing with a simulation which has multiple levels and you are reincarnating through from different levels into this um, physical reality or apparently physical reality and out again, then it does make sense because you're not reincarnating onto a billionth of a pinhead. That's an illusion. What you're doing is reincarnating uh, from one level of the simulation back into the, 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 the densest part um, and the part where the most, uh, quote, louche can be, um, can be generated uh, from people. So, all that sounds pretty bleak. Reincarnation is a trap we gotta get out of, or we're gonna be generating Louche forever. It sounds like Ike has really taken Monroe's cosmology to heart and incorporated it into his worldview. Ike wrote about reincarnation and truth vibrations, the first of the books he would write about the esoterica he spent the rest of his career, quote-unquote, educating the public about. His opinion has certainly changed about reincarnations in 1991, Despite his protestations now, back in 1991, Ike was adamant that the purpose of reincarnation was the refinement of the soul over successive lifetimes so that it may rejoin the Godhead from which it emanated. To quote Ike from Truth Vibrations, Every thought creates an energy field, and we are energy fields. Spirits, formed by the thoughts of God, or the Godhead, as the spirit communicators refer to this force. In the beginning we are spirit sparks. Seeds is a good way of understanding it. We are only potential, the spiritual equivalent of newborn babies. The spirit sparks begin to gain wisdom through existence on all the planes of life until it evolves into a mighty being of love, knowledge, and compassion. At the end of this great journey, we return to become part of the perfect expression of all these qualities, the Godhead. Over thousands of years, this truth has been lost and endless souls have been lost to the seductions of the material world, the only one we have believed existed. The Jesus parable of the prodigal son was a description of the way the spirit leaves the Godhead, learns lessons, and returns. Unfortunately, you can get lost sometimes on this journey, which is what has happened to the human race. So, in 1991, Ike was adamant and unfortunately made some appalling assertions about people living with disabilities and children who have passed away from SIDS. So, I'm going to quote from the Truth Vibrations now, and I will apologise in advance, as this excerpt is offensive. Most people don't suffer from mental and physical handicaps by chance. 
Their souls give themselves disabled bodies on purpose to develop a part of their character and experience. Maybe they have treated a disabled person badly in the past and need to understand what it feels like. Maybe they made someone disabled. Perhaps they need to know how to overcome suffering and frustration. Or it could be that they are here to teach others to love, as anyone who has known a mentally handicapped person will appreciate. They do teach us love and affection. A soul in a handicapped body can be highly evolved, and that handicap ceases to be when that soul leaves the body. Cot deaths have never been explained by medical science. Some, at least, are connected with karmic patterns and decisions. Sometimes a soul will decide it only needs the experience of growth in the womb and birth to balance its development, and so it returns to a spirit plane as soon as this is accomplished. This would appear to us as an inexplicable cot death. It might be that a soul incarnates and then changes its mind. Again, we have the same outcome. But most often, the souls of cot-death babies are spiritual teachers who leave the, bo the body soon after birth to present the parents with a challenge to overcome. The agony of losing a child. Now, I think this is a shitty opinion, to say the least. To be fair, if we have to be fair, it was written and published in a time when these opinions were more commonplace or at least more readily expressed. Unfortunately, just because people agree with you doesn't mean you're right. Obviously, Ike's opinion not only is offensive, it's ignorant too. Particularly with the view of disability that he expresses here. This view of disability strips the lives of people living with disability of everything save their disabilities. Many people living with disability have rich and fulfilling lives. Their disability is a fact of their life, to be sure, but it is not what their lives are about. We can't prove that there is a soul which learns lessons from suffering, but there is a world in which we all live which can be made easier and more accessible for people living with disability. Furthermore, claiming that people living with disability are people who need to learn a lesson may invite discrimination as some could opine that any difficulties they encounter because of their disability are essential to their spiritual education. It should go without saying that it is callous to say that parents who lose a child need to experience that grief so that their souls can learn a lesson, and cruel to the child who has passed to reduce their death to a lesson. People are never means to an end. They are an end unto themselves. Unfortunately, Ike doesn't agree, but instead sees assisting people living with disability as a means to accumulate spiritual clout for the next lifetime. I quote again from The Truth Vibrations. This does not mean we should ignore disabled people or those in distress and dire circumstances. Quite the opposite. The compassion we show and the help we give is one of the tests that will decide the kind of future lives we will have, or even if we need to return to Earth again at all. All I can say is yuck. So Ike in 1991 thinks it's all about learning lessons over many lifetimes so that the soul can develop to a state where it can reunite with the Godhead. Meanwhile, in 2023, Ike says it's all a scam. Um, but most people don't remember previous lives, uh, previous experiences, probably a better word, um, at all. The mind is white. Now, if you um, are uh, reincarnating 
then you have gone through the death process many times. But you, you um, read these endless accounts from near-death experiences, and when they leave the body, it's, it's overwhelmingly all new to them. Uh, and and, and uh, it's like amazing, and they, like they've never experienced it before. Because there's a mind wipe. And if, you, if your uh, mind is wiped um, of memories, then you're not going to learn uh, on top of previous memories to reach a point of enlightenment to get out of here. What you have to suss is what the game is, what's actually happening, what you're part of. And then you've got a chance of um, reaching a point of awareness and spiritual streetwiseness where you can get out of this, this trap and into uh, the totality of infinite reality, which anyone can do. So I, I agree. They don't understand what the game is. If they don't understand the game, they just keep getting trapped in the game. Oh, so, so I agree that our mind is why, but is our soul not recording all the experiences, or don't you believe that? Well, the, for me, it, what people call the soul, that's what's trapped in a simulation. You know, the, you know, the soul is only one level of us. You know, if you talk about the spirit, the greater infinite self, um, the soul is an expression of that, yeah. But um, it's, that's what I say is trapped in the, in the simulation. That, uh, that level of awareness and for that soul to get out and re-absorb uh, into spirit beyond the simulation, it needs to reach a vibrational state that can, um, that can get out of here. It also, it also needs to be uh, streetwise about how the game is. Ike has a new book out, uh, which is specifically about this. So we'll be talking about all of this in greater detail soon. So for now, I'm happy to let Ike have the last word on reincarnation. Ugh, oh, oofty doofty. There's an old saying about a lie being around the world by the time the truth has tied its shoes, and I think the monumental effort we've gone to to look at what Ike has had to say in this interview proves that there's some truth to that saying. Look, that's part three done and dusted, and that's where we'll leave Baptiste de Pape behind, and we will unfortunately continue on with Ike. Next episode, though... I'm excited because we start our look at Ike's latest book, The Trap, which is all about the reincarnation and the simulation and all of that stuff. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact me, including with corrections, which I encourage because I am by no means an expert on physics or the evolution of life on Earth, <laughs> you can email me at ikelandpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, avoid large mobiles. They may eat you for the louche. Bye.